Anyway, yes, so do grab a Bible. Some of the Bibles are just New Testament Bibles, which I just remembered. So um, look for the bigger ones, and they will generally have the, uh, the whole Bible, including the Old Testament, which is where we're going to be from today, Genesis 41. So we are going to the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. We're looking at the life of Joseph. And some of you may have heard of this guy. And many of us know him as Joseph and his many coat of colors or coat of many colors. Um, and he was the son of Jacob. He's the great grandson of Abraham. Um, and as we'll see, he, he was actually, he was born into a large family. Um, but he was, it was not just a large family. It was actually a dysfunctional family. Um, and, and you can kind of see, I mean, it's pretty dysfunctional when, as we've seen in the course of his life, when he's a teenager, he's sold into slavery uh, by his very own brothers. Um, you can tell you have a dysfunctional family when your siblings sell you into slavery. That's definitely true. Um, but we see that despite the dysfunction, despite the brokenness, uh, we see God do amazing things through this family and in this family. And that is um, grace in and of itself, but it's also hope and encouragement for us um, in our own families and, and brokenness that our families can be and how God can use and change that. But, um, but yeah, give you an idea of where we are in terms of timeline of um, kind of the whole narrative of the Bible in the Old Testament. So we're before the time that Jesus has physically come to earth and, and died on the cross for our sins and risen again. So this is Old Testament, um, and, but God has so much to teach us from it. Um, essentially, you see with Abraham, God comes to Abraham this guy, and he gives him this amazing promise. He says that through you, I'm going to bless the nations. And all, well, not just, I'm not just going to bless the nations, but through you, I'm going to bring about a nation as well. Um, and now we're a few generations down the line. And in essence, we're getting glimpses of that promise. So once again, how that promise is going to begin to play out. But in terms of where we are, in terms of Joseph's life, we're going to see that at this point, he's been sold into slavery. That's one thing that's happened. He's been betrayed by his family. And I, and I want you to think, keep this in mind, at, the, at that time that that happened, he would have been just a teenager. One of the first times we're properly introduced to this guy, Joseph, he, it says he was 17. So think about it. You kind of your late teens and your own family kind of turn on you, your own brothers turn on you, sell you into slavery, and then lie to your dad about it. It's, 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 that's, it's heartbreaking. And sometimes we kind of we read it, the story so quickly we forget well, man, imagine how Joseph was feeling in that moment as he's being brought off to, as essentially we'll see, ends up in Egypt. What is going through Joseph's mind? But as I say, he's taken, sold into slavery, he's taken to Egypt and he's sold to a man named Potiphar who happens to be the captain of the guard to Pharaoh and Pharaoh would have been the king of Egypt. And he finds favour with Potiphar. And in Potiphar, this guy essentially entrusts his whole house to Joseph, he puts it into his care, and just as things are looking up for Joseph, he's falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit, and then he's thrown into prison. But through it all, two things you'll continue to see. Two things you'll see is first of all, um, you'll see Joseph continues to trust God, um, but secondly, you'll see a repeated phrase, and it's really subtle, but it says there'll be moments where you're reading through the, the chapters, and, it's, and it'll say, and the Lord was with Joseph. And it's amazing because you'll read something and it'd be like this, this terrible thing happened and he was thrown into prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. And Joseph was in Potiphar's house and the Lord was with Joseph. So keep that phrase in mind. The Lord was with Joseph. And as Joseph is in prison, 
He interprets the dreams of two prisoners and his interpretations come true. Essentially, these two uh, prisoners, they have dreams. They come to Joseph and Joseph tells them what those dreams mean and, wh- and what, they, what is going to happen as a result of those dreams. And that takes place. And out of those two people, the cupbearer, which is one of the guys, he's, the cupbearer is restored to his original position. And as the cupbearer leaves the prison and gets to go back to his original position, Joseph says to him, remember me. He says, hey, buddy, look, I interpreted your dream. Uh, you saw God do these amazing things through me um, to interpret this dream. Remember me as you go up back to your position. Remember that I'm stuck here in prison. But what we find is that the cupbearer quickly forgets. He forgets Joseph. He forgets the dream that Joseph interpreted for him. He forgets him. And that brings us right to our text today, chapter 41. Um, Because as we're going to see in today's text, it's all about dreams. It's a text about dreams. And, And to be honest, the life of Joseph, which we read in the Bible, is actually one full of dreams. And we'll see that he has specific dreams. And these specific dreams are not random and they're not, they're not even normal, but rather they're significant because in each case God is using it to deliver a message. And throughout the Bible we read of a God who desires to talk to us. A God who desires to communicate with us. A God who makes the first move. A God who approaches us. And as with the case of Joseph and in other places of the Bible, God sometimes chooses dreams as a means to talk to us. And this doesn't mean that every time you have a dream, it's a message from God or it's God speaking to you. Okay, So not every time you have a dream, it's, it's not necessarily him. But how it, it is, however, a number of ways in which he chooses to communicate with us. As an example, you think about um, quite radical Muslim converts and, and how in, in some of those moments when, when they kind of convert from Islam to, um, to Christianity, often you will hear that they have a kind of dream or a vision of, of Jesus. Uh, I mean, we see that God still speaks to us today in dreams, although it's maybe not his primary way of speaking to us. Because, because the cool thing is, is uh, when you think about it this way, is his main means of speaking to us today, yes, he can speak to us through dreams, but one of the main ways in which he speaks to us is through his word. It's through, through this book here, through the Bible. And think about it, you don't need to wait for a specific dream to hear from God. Have you thought about that? You don't have to wait for God. You don't have to wait for a specific dream because while God has already spoken, if you want to hear what God has to say, he says, pick up my book. And it's amazing how often we miss that. But rather, if we know this book, we read this book, we love this book, we cherish this book, we'll begin to know the God of this book. One pastor, a guy called John Piper, says it this way. Do you want to hear God speak? Read your Bible out loud. Quite a nice little thing. He says, look, if you want to hear God speak, this is the best place to come. And it's also, and, and, and the beautiful thing is, it's, it's foundational as well. It means if God does want to speak to us in other ways, we have something to test it against. If we want to know if a dream is from God or of God, we come to his word and say, okay, well, no, this, yeah, this does match up with it. Maybe it is from him. You know, it allows us to discern when he is speaking to us in other means. But we also remember that he speaks to us through here. And this is what we're going to find today, that he's going to speak to us as we go through his word. And we start in verse 1 of chapter 41 after that lengthy introduction. And we read of yet another dream and another message that God wants to deliver to people. 
And this time it's Pharaoh and the leader of Egypt who has a special dream. And we read in verse 1, I'm reading from the ESV translation, so it's slightly, um, slightly different from the New King James, um, but they pretty much read very similar. So, And verse 1, it says this, After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. So the scene is set. Two whole years have passed since we last saw Joseph in the events of the cupbearer and when he interpreted his dream. So Joseph is still in prison. He's forgotten about. And now we're introduced by Pharaoh, who at this time has a startling dream, which begins with him standing by the side of the River Nile, a river that we've often heard of before, one of the longest rivers in the world. And we read that he has this dream while standing by. So he has this dream, and in this dream he is standing by the River Nile, and this is what we read happen next. In verse 2 it says, and this is Genesis 41, going from verse 2. And it says this, And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump. And they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. So remember, we have two sets of cows. We've got these seven nice and healthy ones and we have these seven unhealthy and ugly ones. And this is what we read happens next. Verse 4. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. So Pharaoh's dream quickly turns into a nightmare. And as the seven ugly cows eat the healthy ones, he suddenly wakes up from his dream. And we've all been there before. You're having a terrible nightmare, okay? Or maybe you're having a good dream. You're like, man, this dream is so good, which then suddenly turns into a nightmare. You suddenly wake up. And you take a few moments to catch your breath. You kind of get your head together. You kind of like, oh, man, that was, that was scary. And then um, sometimes you may get up, walk around for a bit, or maybe get a drink. Um, but what you usually do is eventually you try and go back to sleep, which is what where Pharaoh does. He, he tries to go back to sleep, and, and that's exactly what he does. And then he's confronted by another very similar dream. It says this in verse 5, and he fell asleep, and he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, half of them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. This time, instead of cows, he dreams of grain. But just like the previous dream, there are seven healthy ears of grain, which are swallowed up by seven unhealthy ears of grain. And keep these similarities in mind. Seven healthy consumed by the seven unhealthy. And if you were, and some of you may have heard of this account before, but if this is the first time you've read it or bring you back to that first time you've read it, most of us would think, okay, what on earth is this dream all about? There's obviously something significant about the dream, but what on earth does it mean? And Pharaoh has that that exact same question. It says this in verse 8, so in the morning his spirit was troubled. So Pharaoh, his trouble, his very heart, his very soul is is troubled by this dream. And it says this, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Essentially, Pharaoh goes and he says he sends for all his, all the magicians and all the wise men he can find. He brings all these different people to him. He says, what does my dream mean? What does this mean? And they all reply, we, we don't know. 
We don't know. We don't know what this means. And it's amazing for us in those questions that we have about life. And in questions that we have, it's amazing how often we will go to every and any other source except for the one that knows the answer. And as we'll see here, it is the one who knows the answer is not Joseph, but rather is God working through Joseph. And it's amazing in our life how often we will, we will go to supposed experts instead of coming to Christ. And coming to Jesus and coming to God. I mean, let's face it, if he created everything and if he knows everything, surely we should be coming to him with our biggest and deepest questions. But as this is going round the palace, as, as kind of word is spreading that Pharaoh has had these dreams and he wants to know what these dreams means, but he, he can't find out in and of himself and all that is available to him, he cannot find the answer. And in that moment... These particular dreams, this news of these dreams, it jogs the memory of a particular cupbearer. A cupbearer who had his dreams interpreted by Joseph while he was in prison. It says this in verse 9, And the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offences today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him, and he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Two years have passed since Joseph interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker who was the other prisoner. And now the cupbearer finally remembers him. He finally remembers all that God did through Joseph. How Joseph not only told them what their dreams meant, but that his interpretation actually came true. What he said would take place actually happens. And it's such a reminder to us that we can be so quick to forget the wonderful things that God does for us. Wonderful things that God does in us and through us. And it's easy for us to forget. But despite the cupbearer failure to remember Joseph, God is in control. And God is beginning to put all the pieces together to fulfill a much greater plan. It says this, And Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. So Pharaoh summons Joseph. He takes him out of the pit of prison and he has him cleaned and provides new clothes for him. And imagine what must be going through Joseph's head. Right? Well, I mean, why is he being summoned to Pharaoh? He must be thinking, for what purpose? It's not every day you get brought before the king of Egypt. Think about it. In that morning, he woke up in prison like any other normal day. And then he gets the call to see Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says that he's heard that Joseph can interpret dreams. But Joseph's response is very interesting. He says this, Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Joseph gives credit to God. In the moment when he could have easily taken credit for himself, he says, no, Pharaoh, you've got this all wrong. This wasn't me. This was 
God. And Joseph had come to realize this beautiful truth, even in prison, even through suffering, that it wasn't all about him. He wasn't the main character in the story. It was God. Joseph wants everybody to know that it was through God he could do all these things. And Pharaoh would see firsthand the workings of God. And if you were to look at the next few verses, you see Pharaoh explains uh, in detail his dream to Joseph. So the cows, the grain, and the fact that nobody understood what it meant. And Joseph listens to these dreams. He takes everything in. But then through God, he can understand the meaning behind these dreams. And he explains it to Pharaoh. So skip down a few verses to 25 and it says this and this is joseph's interpretation of the dreams and he says this then joseph said to pharaoh the dreams of pharaoh are one god has has revealed to pharaoh what is about sorry what he is about to do the seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years the dreams are one the seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years And the seven empty years blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. God wants to speak to Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. And he wants them to know what is about to happen. And as we read, they will face seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And once again, we read of a God who desires to communicate with us, with man. Joseph says God has revealed and God has shown. God continues to do the same today. He continues to reveal himself. He continues to show himself. And, and how does he do that? As we, how does he do that? We, as we mentioned earlier on, one of his primary ways is through, through his word. Through the life and the work of Jesus. If you want to know who God is, what he's like, what he desires and what he plans, what plans he has for, for us, then, then go to his word, look to his word and ultimately look to Jesus. Because Jesus is God in the flesh, God revealed, God manifest. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. Jesus, the word become flesh. If you want to know what God is like, look to his word. But back to our story. Now that they know a famine is coming, what should they do? Okay, we know there's going to be seven years of plenty, but then followed by seven years of famine. So what should we do? And Joseph now explains what is about, not only explains what is about to happen, but then he also gives them a plan to survive, a plan to save Egypt. says this in 33, Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. And let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. 
And then food shall be that food, sorry, rather, that food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. God, through Joseph, not only gives Egypt the warning, but he then gives them a plan to save them. And it's pretty simple. During the years of abundance, keep some of the grain to one side and keep it in storage for the years when you have none. And they will need a man to oversee the operation. And Joseph tells them, they look for someone who is both discerning and look for somebody who is wise. And who do you think Pharaoh is going to choose? Joseph. We read this in the next verse. It says this, 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all the servants. So they're like, yeah, man, this sounds like a good plan. I'm down with this. 38. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? That's a radical verse. Think about it. This guy, Pharaoh, does not believe in the God of the Bible. He does not believe in the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But rather we know that he believes in kind of false Egyptian gods. So think about it. He, but he, radi- he, he notices something radically different about Joseph. To the point where he's even saying, man, this, this, there's something different about this guy. I mean, this, this, guy, this guy has the spirit of God in him. He has something different about him. And imagine if we lived in such a way where people looked at us and were like, man, there is something different about you. There's something different in the way you deal with people. There's something different in the way you talk to people. There's something different in the way you approach people. There's something different in the way you handle this. There's something different in the way you approach this. What is that difference? What's so different about you? And imagine in those moments we could say, I know what the difference is. It's Jesus. I know why I'm different and it's him. I know why you look at me and you think this is great, but actually it's, it's all Jesus doing that through me and in me. And in verse 39 it continues. It says, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. And you shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in, in garments of fine linen, and, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh chooses Joseph. He notices something different about Joseph. As we kind of mentioned that he, he, he sees that God is clearly with him and in him, and for this reason... He chooses him. But put yourselves for a second just in the shoes of Joseph, okay? This morning when you woke up surrounded by prison bars, he had no idea that by the end of the day he would be the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Only second to Pharaoh. Think about how radical that is, right? Joseph started his day as an imprisoned slave, and ended riding in a chariot with people being told to bow before him. I mean, it's crazy. Think about it. That's like going from, that's like us going from being like a slave to like second in command to the prime minister or second in command to the queen. I don't even know what that would be. But it's, it's just, it's, it's a radical transformation. There's no way that when Joseph woke up this morning, he was like, 
Man, I got a good feeling about today. Second in command. That's going to be me, man. That's going to be me. That's my job, man. That's, there's, there's no way he dreamt about it. There's no way he thought that anything like that could happen to him. And it's amazing how God can turn such events so horrific into something so glorious in literally a blink of an eye. He literally clicks his fingers and everything changed. And a few verses later, we're given this little nugget of information in 46. It says this. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the lands of Egypt. At this point, he is 30 years old. When we're first introduced to him, kind of, although he's kind of mentioned briefly in, a, in another chapter before, but when we're really properly introduced to Joseph in chapter 37, when he's currently at that moment living with his family, with his brothers, we read that he was 17 years old when we're introduced to him. And now he's 30. He was 17, now he's 30, which means over 13 years, Joseph has endured being hated and betrayed by his own brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused, imprisoned and forgotten about. 13 years. Think about what you were doing 13 years ago. And imagine all that period of time between this point and that point. You lived the kind of life that Joseph experienced. And it's so easy for us to forget, you know, when we come read chapter by chapter, we read it in a, a moment, a matter of minutes. But for Joseph, this was 13 years. And yet, yet through all of it, God was with him. And God is using all these terrible things to bring about salvation. And Joseph, who had his favored coat taken from him, is now given new clothes. He's given a new life. The rest of the chapter, we see Joseph living out his new life. He gets married, has children, and he begins to fulfill his duties as second in command over Egypt, storing in the years of plenty in preparation for the years of famine. Throughout all the, the years of difficulty, Joseph, he chooses to trust God. I have no doubt that Joseph at moments had doubts. There's no doubt about that. He, he, there would have been moments he doubted, but generally when you look at the flow of his life, he, he trusts God. He trusts God even when he, it costs him as well. We see that he trusts him. The circumstances around him were dark, but God was with him and God had a purpose. And looking back, Joseph is now beginning to understand this truth. And we see this in the names that he decides to give his children. And even for us today, names often have meanings. And I'm sure um, many of you guys will know your names and what your names mean. My name is Daniel. So it's a pretty cool name, you know. It's a pretty cool name. Uh, and the uh, and it's basically Dan is kind of judge, and L is kind of essentially God. So the idea is kind of um, God is my judge, or God judges, um, which is cool when you put it together with my middle name, which I never realised until you you, know, you sometimes realise these things until you get older, you know. My middle name is John, which basically means grace. Think about that. You essentially get the gospel in my name. It's like. You know, God is my judge. I'm judged. You know, I'm guilty. But then you get John and John is grace. And I don't have a clue what Taylor means. So it's not that kind of Taylor. It's a different kind of Taylor. Anyway, 
Joseph has given his names, kids' names for a purpose. My parents, I don't think they gave my name for a purpose. I think they just lightened the name Daniel. But Joseph calls his kids for a reason. And, and we read this in, in verse 51 of that same chapter. So Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim. Oh, no, sorry, Ephraim, I think that's how you say it. And he says, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So look at those two names, Manasseh and it's Ephraim, I think that's how you say it, yeah. Manasseh and Ephraim. So let's look at Manasseh for a second, for the first thing. And he says, Manasseh, so God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. So Joseph declares that the joy he has experienced on the other side of his suffering outweighs all the pain he went through to the point that it has literally made him forget that's a beautiful beautiful kind of promise but we see that for us as christians that truth truth is is true as well we read this in in the letter which paul wrote to the romans in romans chapter 8 and verse 18 says this for i consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So the Apostle Paul tells us that for the Christian, for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, no matter how painful our life becomes in this world, our life with Jesus in eternity after we die will be so much greater that there's no point even comparing the two. In essence, the joy we will experience will wipe away even the deepest pains we experience while on earth. But this isn't the only hope we have as Christians. So that's, that's our first hope. We see that the joy that we will experience will, will, in essence, wipe away or outweigh the pain we experience now. That's, 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 that's the hope, number one, we have, or, or kind of the promise we have, number one, we have. But look then at Ephraim where it says this. Ephraim's name, which is which is beautiful, when it says the name of the second he called Ephraim. Why? Why do you call him Ephraim? Because God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So essentially, Joseph declares that God has made him fruitful in the land of his affliction. In essence, God has taken and can take the most painful and darkest situations and use it for good. He can use it for purpose. He can use it for a reason. He can use it to bring about fruit. And this is also true for the Christian. It says this in Romans 8:28, another beautiful verse which we often hear. And we know that for those who love God, so for those who love God, so if you love God, if you love Jesus, if you're like, yes, I want to follow you and I've given my life to you, this, this truth applies to us. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So Paul tells us that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And that's not just some things, but all things. And that includes the bad things, not just the good things, but, but the bad things as well. For the Christian, God takes even the most painful parts of our lives and he uses it for a purpose. He uses it for good. And often we don't see it straight away. Often, like Joseph, we're in the middle of our pain and we can't see how God is using it. There's no way Joseph could see how God was using it. And, and to be honest, he still doesn't see the 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 kind of the, the even the bigger wider wider picture that God is using it for 
Like even when jo- Joseph comes to the end of his life, and we'll look at that in a second, he sees a he sees a great deal of why God did all these things and why how God was using all these things. But there was even greater things that God was going to use it for that he couldn't even see yet. And the truth is, with us, there'll be moments where we're like like Joseph, and we're going in the middle on on and, and the thick of it, and there's no way in the middle of it we can see how God is using it. We're like God, how are you using this? And in those moments, like Joseph, he calls us to trust him. Because one day we will finally see. One day we'll see why and how he used our pain to bring about good. This is the, this is the story of Joseph's life. It is a life full of pain which God used for good. And this is the hope that we have as Christians. The hope we have as disciples and followers of Jesus. We have this promise that our, that our joy to come will wipe away our current pain and that God uses even our most painful moments for a purpose, for a reason. And this is all possible for one person, one person alone, and that is Jesus Christ. Thousands of years later, Jesus would become a man. He would die on a cross. He would face suffering, but God would turn that suffering into our joy, into his joy. God would use that suffering of Jesus on the cross to save us. Because on the, on the cross, Jesus steps into our place. He takes the punishment that we deserve for every wrong thought, every word, wrong deed, word, act, wrong word, wrong action, so that we could be forgiven. And not only that, but then he rises again and he gives us that, he offers us that gift of forgiveness, but then also that gift of reconciliation to God. So in essence, we get to have a relationship with God. And, and what a beautiful gift that is. But he offers us as, as a gift and he gives us a choice. He says, look, here's the gift, but you have that one choice to make. Are you going to accept it? And how you receive that gift is, is by faith. When we repent of sin, so we turn away from sin and instead we turn to Jesus. It is by faith, by making our choice, that choice to turn away from our sin and follow him, that we, we receive that gift. And then we get the opportunity to get to know God like Joseph did, as we put our faith and trust in him. And the amazing thing is that God isn't finished yet. He isn't finished with Joseph yet at this point in the narrative. He still has much more good to bring about from this situation and this chapter ends with the years of plenty coming to an end and the years of famine beginning. And as this happens, because of, because of Joseph, Egypt is prepared. Okay, so the seven years of plenty came and, and they stored what they needed. And now the, the years of famine are upon them and Egypt is ready. But Egypt is not the only place being affected by this famine. This famine was spreading, spreading beyond Egypt. We read this in our very last verse of 57 of, of the same chapter. So 41:57, we, we read this. It says this, Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe all over the earth. Everybody is struggling with the famine and coming to Egypt for food. And it was not too long before a certain family would also be hit by the famine and would also be forced to come to Egypt for food. And they would have to come before Joseph. And this family would be Joseph's family. God had an even greater plan up his sleeve. 
the rest of Genesis records how God will ultimately reconcile Joseph with his brothers. Think about it. Joseph's family, they are hit by the same famine and the only place they can go to get food is Egypt. Who's there waiting for him? And he doesn't even know it yet. Is Joseph. And there is about to be a family reunion. And as I say, the rest of the, essentially the rest of Genesis, the book of Genesis will ultimately, will essentially it records how God will ultimately reconcile Joseph with his brothers and reuniting him with his family. And it's amazing to think that God would use the very sin that was committed against Joseph to work about the salvation of the ones who committed the sin. And as Joseph looks back, he's finally able to say this. And this is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. In the very last chapter, Genesis chapter 50, he says this. And, and if, you, you know, if you ever have a chance, feel free to read kind of the, the, uh, the, the, the chapters in between. Obviously, there's a, a lot of chapters between 41 and 50, and we see a lot of different mm-hmm. events take place. But in essence, we'll see Joseph reconciled to his brothers. And what happens is... Their, their father passes away. Jacob passes away, or who has the name changed to Israel. Um, but basically, Jacob, he, he passes away, and the brothers are like, oh no, man, now that our dad's passed away, who's going to stop Joseph from taking his revenge on us? They're worried, right? They think, oh no, man. It's like, so, so what they do is they, they basically go to Joseph, and they begin to beg. They begin to beg for their lives. And essentially, they, it says this in 17, they say to Joseph, Um, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. This is chapter 50, verse 17. So think about it. They come, essentially his brothers come to Joseph and say, Joseph, man, man, we're sorry, we're sorry what we did. You know, just don't hurt us, don't hurt us, don't hurt us. And Joseph weeps. Joseph falls down and and cries because they just don't get it. His brothers just don't understand. In verse 18, it says this, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But then Joseph turns to them and says this, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Verse 19. And it says this, verse 20, one of my favorite verses is this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He comes to the end of his life and says, man, you meant evil against me. You sinned against me. You meant evil against me. But God took that evil. God took that which you meant against me and he used it for good. He used it for good to save and I often, I think that's it's such a lovely verse to come back to when we are in the middle of, of hardships and sufferings to think about, okay, no, Lord, you're in control and you're using even the most darkest of situations for good, even though I can't see it right now. And I, and I love, and as we go through this narrative, and it's always a good question to ask ourselves whenever looking through Scripture, the Old Testament and New Testament and both, is to ask, where is God in the narrative? Where do we see God in the narrative? And when I ask myself this question within uh, regards to Joseph's life, where is God? Where are you, God, in the narrative? Where is God in the narrative? And the answer is with Joseph. The beautiful truth is that in the narrative, God is with Joseph in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his family betraying him, in the midst of being taken against his will and made a slave. God is with him. 
And this is so important because often when we face moments of suffering, we, we, we're tempted to ask the question, God, where are you? And you really could, if you were in Joseph's shoes in those situations, you could easily come to that, that question of God, where are you? And for us as Christians, we have the beautiful promise that he is with us always, even in the midst of our pain. And as I, I think I mentioned this last week, suffering is not always a sign of God's absence. Because we sometimes see that actually God's grace is taking us, is taking it, well, let me say it again. We sometimes see that God's grace, so we sometimes see God's grace in taking us out of the storm. So we sometimes see God's grace in taking us out of our painful situation, but more, most often than not, we see God's grace in, in taking us through the storm. And because, uh, um, and, and scripture is clear, just because uh, if, when we do go through moments of suffering, it's not necessarily a sign that God has left us. It's not a sign of his absence. And, and Joseph's life is, is testimony to that. That actually God is with him through it. And as I say, God, suffering is not always a sign of God's absence, but rather we, we will sometimes see God's grace in taking us out of the storm but we often see him in taking us through it and giving us the strength and bringing us through it. And we will certainly see both in the case of Joseph's life. God's grace displayed in taking such sin, such darkness, such sorrow, such hardship and such calamity and using it to save people. And we'll see that actually this act of salvation is not just limited to Joseph and his family. It's not just limited to Egypt and the surrounding areas. But rather, it's not just them being saved through this moment. But it's actually us being saved through this moment too. Because through Joseph's family would come a nation. And that nation would be the nation of Israel. And from this nation would come a redeemer and our saviour. Through this nation would come Jesus. You see, and that's the thing which Joseph even himself could not see at that time, that actually through that pain that Joseph experienced, God could bring about a mission. God could bring about his plan, not just to save Egypt, not just to save Israel, but ultimately to save us through Jesus coming as a result of them being saved. So as we go away and as we kind of close, I want you to, as you go through this week, keep in mind this story of Joseph. Keep in mind that we can often only see, we, we often miss the, the grander things that God is doing, the bigger things that he is doing. And in those moments of hardships, let, us, let me encourage you to trust him, to lean upon him, to go towards him, because he wants to walk with you through it. And so often we, we, we are guilty, myself included, of coming to God when things are good. Um, well, and, and, but then failing sometimes to come to him when things are bad as well. So often we, we, we come, when things go wrong, we start to kind of blame God when actually in those moments we need to be coming to him and saying, yeah, Lord, I, I don't understand what is going on, but I trust you. And one of the most helpful verses I find is, is, is a verse in the New Testament where, this man says, I believe, but help my unbelief. A oh, lovely idea of that. And there's going to be, there's going to be moments like that where, we, where we, if we could just simply come to God and be like, God, I don't understand what's going on. But Lord, I trust you. I know I could trust you more, but with what little I have, I trust you. 
grow my faith, increase my faith that I would trust you more. So let us pray together, guys. Father, I want to thank you. I thank you for the life of Joseph. And Lord, I thank you, Lord. And and it's easy for us to forget, Lord, that you took this suffering that he went through and you used it to save people. You, You didn't just use it to save Egypt or to save Israel, but you ultimately used it to save us. Because through, through saving Joseph, through saving his family, you could grow a nation. You could bring about a nation. And through that nation, you could bring about our Savior. And that was your plan all along. Your plan all along, even through this account of Joseph, you were looking to us. You were looking ahead to what you would do for us, Lord. And it makes us realize just how, how, uh, how infinite your plans are, how big your plans are, and how small our minds are to comprehend those plans. Like we and Lord, forgive us in the moments where we, we, we where we try to, to to be in the place of God. We try to take the place of God. We try to understand everything. We try to control everything. When the truth is, we we have no control. And Lord, the truth is, Your vision is greater than our own. So in those moments when we are suffering, Lord, help us to trust You. Help us to cling to those promises that You've given us, Lord. Uh, and and you know, and, and if we ever if we ever doubt You, Lord. May you bring us back to the cross. Because if, if we stay in that place of looking at your cross, we realize you love us. When we spend our time looking at the cross, you realize that you turn pain into joy. And you, you, use, you use darkness and you use it to, you churn it around for our, for our salvation, Lord. So, Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you, Lord. And, and yeah, Lord, for, and help us to put our faith and trust in you. In every aspect of our lives. Lord we thank you for the life of Joseph. And we pray Lord as we go through this week. You would encourage us through his life. And the things that you did through him. So Lord help us to remember these things. Lord give us a desire to know you more. To know your word more. And Lord may you increase our faith. That we would trust you more. That we would be men and women. Like Joseph father. But even actually, actually ultimately more. Even beyond that, Lord, that we be men and women like you, Jesus. Because you trusted the Father to the, to the cross, Lord. And you did that all for the joy that was set before you, and that was us. So, Lord, help us to remember these things, Lord. Give us safe journeys as we go home, Lord. And bless our conversations with each other, Father, Lord. And we thank you for, for, for who you are and for what you've done in and through us, Father. In your name we ask all these things, Jesus. Amen.